Welcome to Story Comic Presents, where we interview amazing storytellers and artists. This is episode 253. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're excited to have back with us our friend from down under, the award-winning and internationally celebrated author, Amy Lawrence. Hello. It's good to be How's back. How's it going, Amy? Yeah. So last time we talked, we had a we had a great conversation. We were talking about the um, how you've been able to manage to adjust your working style based off of the fact that you've self-diagnosed yourself with ADHD. It's been a, a few months checking in with you. Uh, how, now that you've been able to kind of help identify that, um, how have you seen your your work progress because of that? Yeah, wow, that's a really good question. I guess it really started coming to the fore for me um so it was but i'm realizing more and more the longer that i have changed careers that a significant part of the reason that it had never been an issue or something that i had identified before or anything like that was because the teaching profession was so inherently suited mm. to the needs of that kind of thinking in that kind of brain, you know, and like you're, you're constantly task switching and juggling lots of projects and there is never a chance to get bored because you are way too busy for that. Um, and because it is a subject that you're interested in, you know, I was an English teacher and I, and I chose that because I love English, right? Mm. So there's natural motivation there and you can naturally sort of tailor it to pursuing your own interests. Changing industries to something that is more of a you know, reasonably standard style desk job has revealed to me a whole bunch of challenges that I now have to have had come up with, you know, strategies to to address and to support in that work. Because all of a sudden, you know what, I don't have to task switch as often. Hmm. I don't have the same quantity of work that I have to push out on a daily basis and sometimes I really just have to do the work of sitting down, reading a really long, boring report that I don't have a lot of contextual information for. And that's my job and I just have to do it. And you know what? That's hard. <laughs> I've not really had to do much of that before. So, yeah, definitely it's been a really big learning curve um, and it's been really interesting. And I'm really glad that I went into it with that degree of self-awareness so that I could start searching out, um, particularly there's a lot of Instagram accounts that I follow that are all about neurodivergent coaching and that sort of thing um, to develop some key, you know, tips and tricks, I guess, that are really helping to improve that aspect of my workflow, which then obviously has positive spillover effects on into writing, publishing, family life, emotional stability, all those sorts of things as well. So, yeah. Yeah. And so what, are, that's a good point. So what are some of the tips that you're able to really find very effective for you that you've noticed? So one of the main ones that I have realized is that, so everybody has this bandwidth, right? Of like, here is overstimulated and here is understimulated. Okay. And pretty much everyone understands what it feels like to be overstimulated. We've all been there at some point in our life mm. and it's just there's too much coming in at the time and we're overwhelmed and we just start to shut down and we can't think properly or logically because it's just all too much and we're overwhelmed. Right. And we're really familiar broadly throughout society with how that feels and the fact that when we get to that point our brain is just not functioning effectively right mm. what's really interesting for the adhd spectrum is that down at this end of being understimulated it actually feels just as uncomfortable and you're actually just as incompetent at functioning like there, there's no brain cell action going on there to actually be productive and effective in your work 
and most people's bandwidth for like, okay, here's where I'm like, let's, let's, you know, bored, but it's more than bored, but here's where I'm bored and here's where I'm overstimulated. So I've got a fairly big range in between. The worse your ADHD is, and I'm very lucky that mine has not significantly interfered with my life, but, mm. um, you know, nevertheless, it is a, it's a, a thought process that's there. Um, so, you know, the more the, the more severe ADHD is, the narrower that bandwidth is, right? Between being completely overstimulated and unable to get anything done, and completely understimulated and also being unable to get anything done. Okay. And often this part here is where executive dysfunction occurs, and that's that feeling for those people. It's it's it's, it's almost like a unicorn to describe because it just sounds so unreal unless you've experienced it yourself, right? From the outside, it looks exactly the same as just being lazy or procrastinating or all these sorts of things. Hence why there's so much stigma around this idea of ADHD and so many mental health problems that cohabit with it because there is that continual self-judgment and questioning of like, well, am I just being lazy? And there's a lot of, you know, that label gets applied to ADHD people far too frequently. But the difference is on the inside of what it looks like. And I've seen some really simple explanations that basically like if you're stressed about the fact that you're not doing this thing, that's never laziness because mm. true laziness just means it's like, oh, well, I have to do this thing. Meh, I can't be bothered, whatever. If you have to do the thing and you can't do the thing and that's stressing you out, that's some form of executive dysfunction going on there where your brain actually doesn't have the chemicals that it needs to transition over into doing that task. And often that's because the task is one that appears to you to be challenging and you don't know how to break it down to begin, or it's an inherently unrewarding task. And it's something that you know is going to be really boring and not give you a really good feeling of satisfaction when you're done. And because down on this understimulated section of the spectrum, that, that boredom, actually has like physical manifestations of discomfort it's not just like man i'm feeling bored i don't know what to do i want to do something it's like no my body and brain are actually literally starting to shut down and be able to unable to process effectively just like being overstimulated because i'm right. too understimulated right now and so i can't get myself going to do the tasks that i need to do right Right. So with that principle in mind and the fact that as human beings, you know, the more tired that we get and the more overwhelmed we are, the narrower that bandwidth naturally is anyway, I've started to be able to look really with a lot more self-awareness at like, oh, I'm noticing that I'm having trouble doing this task right now and I get this at work in my day job quite a lot now, right? Why am I avoiding this task? Am I overstimulated or am I understimulated? And just that simple act of asking that question of going, am I overstimulated? Is there too much noise and there's too much sensory input right now? Usually it's not that. I work in a fairly mm. quiet office. I work from home sometimes and it's obviously fairly quiet here as well. So often I'm finding it's the understimulated side that's the problem. And so then it's a matter of, okay, well, what um, sensory stimulation can I add in to actually kick my brain up over that boundary into the zone of functionality. So some days it's like, okay, check my temperature. Am I too hot? Am I too cold right now? Add a heat blanket for, you know, physical warmth stimulation is, is a common one I have to do. Um, chewing things. My brain loves to be chewing things while it's doing boring tasks that are otherwise boring. Right. Um, so I'm obviously I, I spent many years as a teacher snacking on junk food while I was marking. And then once I finally connected these dots, I've been able to make the slow transition through to like, maybe we can chew on almonds now instead of eating an entire bag of candy while we spend an hour marking papers, you know? <laughs> 
um, um, experimenting with different kinds of music or podcasts or things like that to add sensory stimulation in, which explains also like why when I was teaching, um, often if it was so year seven and eight at the beginning of high school here in Australia, so if it was that low level high school thing where they were quite short papers and I could I didn't have to have 100% of my brain engaged and then I could sort of mark at 75%, you know. I could add in a podcast or something in the background to, like, add that extra stimulation while I was working to help keep me focused. So, yeah, just really learning to experiment with, like, different types and levels of sensory input to try to find, okay, and, and of course, it's different every day, right? Like, you you tend to build up a library of like, well, I know that this and this and this are generally my go-tos that I can add in when I need stuff, but they're not always going to work and often they'll only work for maybe an hour or two and then I'll have to switch it up again. And so building that repertoire of options to be like, okay, how can I either remove stimulation or add stimulation to get into that zone of functionality to get done what I need to get done? So, mm. yeah, that's been the most um, effective and interesting thing that I've learned for sure. So I'm I'm curious because I know you have a very successful line of how-to books, how to write dogs, how to theme, how to create cultures. Is there something on the line as that you've kind of discovered this newfound passion of how you're able to hone your creativity? Is there any thought about, is there a thought or a need to create a book about how to be a writer with ADHD? Yes but not in the short term, you know, like social media and blog posts and podcasts and things like that are a great place to share things that you're learning live as you're experiencing them, as you're going through them and being like, Hey, this is a cool thing I learned this week. And this is where I'm going with this. I feel like that for it to be a book that obviously by its nature tends to be more enduring. um, More people will often engage with it on a deeper level. I feel like I want to have like more of a weight of experience and research behind that before I went into something like that, if that makes sense. Yeah. You're, you, you don't have a medical background. You don't have a psychological, but you have a background of being a peer in the sense of like, I'm an author. This is how I've also been yeah. able to, what would you do like for, for an author that's listening to this and saying, Amy, you're nailing it. This is exactly how I'm feeling. How can I, you described how you, how you, you've been able to do it, but what advice would you give an author who's just been struggling in that analysis paralysis phase of, of yeah. things and not sure how to do it? How, what would, what, what type of advice would you give them? So one of the things that has also been the most helpful for me, and I resent this so fiercely with like every cell of my being <laughs> is literally just weekly journaling. And I mm. hate so much that it works because I hate everything about the process of journaling. I hate handwriting. Um, you know, often you're thinking about things that you'd rather not be thinking about and so it feels weighty and so you procrastinate getting to it because it's not a thing that you want to do. But it's like exercise, right? Like the getting to it is hard, at least it is for mm. me. I know some people have the ability to exercise without it being difficult, which fun facts apparently is uh, at least partially attributable to your gut microbiome. I was reading in the New Scientist this morning. Your gut microbiome literally impacts how motivated you feel to exercise. Random fact of the day. Um, but, yeah, so that that weekly journaling process for me of just there's a couple of key questions that I that I use. One is doing a, a priority check of, like, what are my big priorities this week that I absolutely have to get done 
And then what are some small things that I would like to get done around that? And then next of like, if I finish my to-do list, here's where I'll go, but this is probably next week. The reason that that's been so transformative for me is that being both with, you know, ADHD tendencies, with a creative brain, with being entrepreneurial, having all of these ideas constantly, there is this constant uh, temptation to completely overload myself with doing too many things. And that, I can't exaggerate enough how many flow-on effects that that has in the rest of your life for your productivity, for your mental health, for your well-being, for all these sorts of things. And often that analysis paralysis that you mentioned comes in because either I have put too much on my plate and I haven't been clear about my priorities or I'm actually really overtired and I'm not taking care of myself and I need to deliberately pull back and prioritize resting for a week. And so just doing that simple exercise at the start of each week of what is, of you know, making that space to be like, well, what are my absolute must get done this week? What would I like to get done? And then what will I have to do next week? Has just given me so much clarity over the last 18 months now to be able to go, for, the, for example, coming into this week, I had seven big things that must be done this week. And I looked at it and went, I know from previous experience that I physically can't get seven bigs done in one week. I can't do it. I have to pick five of these maybe. So I mm. have to choose two of these that I am deliberately going to shuffle back the deadlines on. And it feels really stressful to begin with, but it actually becomes really empowering because you are, you're, you're the one making the choice rather than feeling like you're constantly running behind and playing catch up with everything. And that is really helping with that analysis paralysis because it's like, well, no, I've already done the thinking this week. I've already decided what my priorities are. Um, and actually it's really interesting. I have, I have the outline for a nonfiction book sitting on my hard drive waiting for the moment when it would be right to work on it. And a lot of it was about like tips and tricks and productivity hacks that I had developed when I was teaching in order to be able to be accomplishing both a very demanding day job and actually doing some writing and publishing that as well. And right. one of the things that I, one of the headings that I have in there is think as little as possible, right? So lump all of your decision-making and all of your thinking and done. So I guess that's that's the what this process has, has resulted in or this is the result of that type of thinking is, well, no, I do my thinking once a week and I know what my priorities are for this week and it's tempting to get distracted with all of these other things, but you know what? They go onto the scratch pad and I'll consider them again next Sunday when I sit down to do my priorities for the week and I don't need to think about them right now. This is a no-thinking zone. <laughs> yeah, so that was going to be my next question for you. Is there... How much have you had to sacrifice for creativities by by being able to actually identify this new thinking process? Because, you know, as I say, you're we've we've talked a lot over the last last few years, Amy, and you always have new projects. Yeah. So, how have you? Is there is there a piece of you as a creative who, based purely off of for mental health purposes, saying? I'm doing too much here. I got too many ideas. How do you prioritize your these creative children of yours? And that's literally been like that. That's literally the professional journey that I've been on the last 12 months. And I had the privilege to actually be involved in a business mastermind class. That that was the point of the 12 month mm -hmm. class was was exploring these issues and learning these learning about techniques to to combat that. And I guess one of the things that really sticks with me is uh, Hillary Rushford is the person who was running this class and she does a lot of work on wellness and um, she just released a, a course on healing burnout at the end of last year that I took and was really, really excellent and effective. And one of the things that she says is that 
having too many ideas, we often feel like that's an overwhelming thing and a thing that puts a lot of pressure on us and it creates a lot of FOMO. But if Mm. we flip the lens on that, actually it's a recognition of the fact that we are brilliant, creative, intelligent geniuses, you know, because our minds are constantly coming up with more than we can possibly do in a lifespan because we have brilliant minds, because we're creative, right? And part of that is, I mean, A, that's really lovely because that's a a much more positive way to think about that. But B, also it's that acknowledgement of, you know what, if you are a creative person, your ideas are going to be infinite and your lifespan is not. So you have to come up with some way of dealing with this. You have to make some sort of peace with the fact that you are never going to be able to do every idea that you come up with because your brain is too brilliant but your ideas are infinite and your time is not, you know? Mm. So yeah, then learning to start to prioritise that. Um, And I've actually been using Hillary's journal for the last year. She's just come out with the new version, which is a little bit different to the one that I started using last year, but it's the Elegant Excellence Journal. I'm not an affiliate member or anything like that. I just really, really love the journal and it really helped me to learn these techniques last year. Um, And she has a whole bunch of exercises in in the start of that where it's all about going, okay, well, where do I want to be in three years' time? Where could I be in, you know, magical la-la land in 10 years' time? Well, which of my projects is it that's actually driving me towards that and which are projects that are fun and rewarding and fulfilling but also are maybe competing with where I actually want to be in three years' time. And so, you know, anyone who follows my social media feeds will notice that there have been significantly fewer cakes in my feed, for example, in the last 12 months than there were prior to that because it was just this realisation of, you know what, I love creating cakes. They're beautiful. They're creative. They are They are so much uh faster than a book you know a cake might take me like 16 to 20 hours for a big fancy wedding cake but a novel takes a lot longer than that and the inherent immediacy of that feedback of I created a pretty thing and you know like everybody loves a good cake everyone is going to give you positive feedback on like oh my gosh your cake is amazing and oh my gosh they taste so good I love cake whereas if you write books people are like hey you wrote a book (laughs) you know so Learning to sacrifice that immediate dopamine hit and reward rush of like, I made a pretty thing that people like and I'm getting validation (laughs) and feedback from that for actually this is taking significant chunks of my life and it's fun and it's inherently rewarding, but it's also in direct conflict with what I actually want for my long term, which is, you know, a full-time author career. Yeah, you got to make some tough decisions, you know, like, we're not infinite. Our ideas are infinite and we are not. And it gets down to what, you know, you're, you're talking about before and just also thinking about like, you know, Amy Lawrence as a brand, you know, cause you're also selling a brand. Yeah. And, and a part of that is we always talk about the, what you, you know, what you do and how you do it, yeah. but also talking about that brand level of what an Amy, Amy Lawrence brand is, is like the why. So how would you describe Amy Lawrence as a brand and have that has that been helpful for you in the last 12 months? Yeah, I've actually done um, the last 12 months is probably the most concerted work that I've done on really clarifying what that brand is and who I am and what I stand for and what the brand looks like and things like that. Um, and interestingly, I'm actually in the middle right now of a couple of months of work that I'm doing with a graphic designer 
to do a visual rebrand to match with all of this behind the scenes work that I've been doing. And I, um, I saw earlier you had my website up and you can see that it's got new headers and all those sorts of things it now. It's yeah. still very much a work in progress, but um, yeah, it's getting there. So you can see yeah. the, yeah, the new look headers and things like that. I still need to create yep. a proper home page. I'm just using my about as a temporary homepage, but we'll get there. That's okay. Um, right. What's been really interesting actually about this whole branding process is that I felt a lot of pressure very early on in my writing and publishing career to know my brand, you know? And I think that a lot of people who are starting small businesses of any kind, including any author, because if you are being an author of any kind or a creative of any kind, you are a small business owner, like it or love it or hate it, you know? And there's, there is so much pressure culturally and socially to know your brand because that's just considered a smart thing to do. And how can right. you possibly, you know, have a successful business if you don't know what your brand is and you don't know who your niche is? And so it was something that I felt a lot of, I'm not going to say like stress and anxiety, but it was definitely negative feelings around that, you know, of like, but I don't know what my brand is and I don't have clarity around this. And can I just say that the last 12 months has been the most reassuring process ever of realizing that everything great in life takes time. And this has become such a countercultural message that it's just ridiculous how countercultural it is to just state the obvious. But if you've only written one book, you can't know what your brand is. Right. If you've only written two books, you can't know what your brand is, right? right? If you are, you know, dare I say as well, one of those amazing teenage people who gets into writing really early and is writing extremely competent fiction as a teenager, first of all, congratulations, you're amazing. But second of all, you still probably can't know your brand because you don't know yourself well enough yet, you know? Right. And so this whole process of like what is the Amy Lawrence brand has been rather than like this one moment of like epiphany of like I sat down to do these exercises, I filled out these worksheets and now I know what my brand is, it's actually been like this layering throughout the year of coming back and revisiting this concept and gathering all this data and looking at, you know, what I've written and published. Ooh, wrong, that, that one there. <laughs> um and distilling that and going, okay, so I think it's something to do with this shape. And then a few months later coming back and going, oh, actually, okay, I can see it's kind of this shape. You know, and it's, it's like any artistic process. You start with a general idea and you become more and more specific as you go on. You start with the rough outline of the sketch and then you fill in the details until, it, you know, you add the last level of detail or you start with a block of marble and you sculpt out the rough shape before you start doing the, the limbs and then the features and things, you know. And for me, the process of branding has become when I, when I let go of the white knuckling need to know it now and relaxed and just let it evolve as a process I found that it very naturally mimicked exactly that artistic process that we all go through when we're creating anything of well I have a general idea okay give it time and it will become more specific and now give it more time and you can refine that again and just that gradual layering and processing away until you have that clarity of understanding you know hmm. don't panic is the key so message <laughs> You know, and, and since we talked last, there was uh, there was a lot of uh, a big thing that was happening through Twitter on the internet about, about talking about um, AI and art. Like yes. people can type in all of a sudden, but and 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 then all of a sudden, basically, what happens is that the AI takes images from the internet and just kind of so it takes actual people's works and create it. So the 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 one 
last vestige of creativity has always been the writer. Like there's no way a computer can actually do writing. But now with chat GPT, yeah. where you can actually go to chat GPT and say, give me five titles for a book. Yeah. And it'll give you five titles. Then you can tell, all right, take this title and give it um, 10 chapters titles. It would make 10 chapter titles. And then you can tell it, now take one that take this chapter title and give it an outline. So there is actually now a way where you can actually use AI to actually write entire novels. So as somebody who has been a successful award-winning fantasy author for well on 10 years, um, how does that, what's your, what's your observation on that? So, yeah, it's a really interesting space and a couple of things come to mind. Uh, a few years back, I think on her Instagram account, Maggie Stevotta, who is uh, a New York Times bestselling author of, of multiple different young adult series, made this comment that really, really stuck with me. And she said that, I, I'm probably paraphrasing my words, not hers, but right. essentially what she said was, there is limited table, there is limited room at the table for good, but there is infinite room for great. Huh. Right? So there is always going to be a limited amount of spaces for people who are good at their job, whatever that job is, whether it's being creative, whether it's being a lawyer, which is one of the huh. industries that we're really seeing disruption from AI in, right? But there is infinite room for great because that's not something that can be imitated, right? Okay, yeah. So first of all, and this was a realisation that I had at some point in my teaching career as well, and probably I would have many colleagues that would disagree vociferously with me, but when mobile phones and things like that started becoming a thing and, you know, originally there was that attempt to keep them out of classrooms and, you know, oh, check your phones in and leave it by the door, you can't stop them. They're in, right? right? And so for me, like it or hate it, and there were elements of both, I realized that actually it was literally part of my job description now to be more interesting than a phone. If I wanted to be a successful teacher in the classroom, it was now part of my job description to be more interesting than a phone. Huh. And so if I want to be a good writer in the age of AI, it is now my job, like it or hate it, to be a better writer than AI. There is okay. limited room for me if I want to be a good writer, but I do believe right. that there is infinite room if I want to be a great writer. That's an awesome point. Do you see AI as a tool, like as much as like a computer or a typewriter or a, a paper and pencil then? I think that it's going to be really interesting to see to what extent it becomes part of the mainstream. You know, like mm. obviously every time we see technological disruption in any way, there are always some people who are over-adopting, and this doesn't matter whether they're early, middle, or late. It's nothing to do with when they pick it up, but just how they use it. There are people who over-adopt and over-rely on the technology. There are people who under-adopt and poo-poo the technology and are like, no, that's completely destroying all the purity of this process or job or whatever it is. And then there are people in the middle ground, right? And I feel like for me... To say that someone will never, ever, ever use AI tools in their writing is to completely overlook the invention of spell check, for example, right. right? So there are much and all as I personally at this exact point want to be like, I do not want to use AI for my writing. 
I also recognize that at some point in time, this is going to become so normalized that parts of it are going to be part of my process that because they just are going to be part of everybody's process and they're not things that I would have consciously considered beforehand, like spell check. I don't use grammar check and I don't use Grammarly and things like that, though, um, particularly for fiction because they are designed to correct to standardized English and you want right. that for things like essays and professional writing. You don't want that for creative fiction. Dad, that's a good point. Yeah. 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 But on the other hand, for me, the whole point of being a creative is to let my brain out to run off its leash and to practice solving problems in creative ways that I don't get to do anywhere else in my life. So why would I outsource the fun part of the job to a computer? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right. And also then that, that awareness of the fact that what sells your books is you and your voice. And we do not have AI yet at the level of, with, its, with the ability to mimic you, you mm. know? Like the best asset that I have as a creative in any field is the uniqueness that makes me me that is literally what that's, that's what my branding comes back to that's what my audience comes back to that's what the tone and feel of my art comes back to is me and the bit that makes me me and not anyone else who's working in the, in the same field right and so i if i sacrifice that then i might as well be manufacturing drink bottles for a living you know right. Which is not to say that you can't manufacture drink bottles for a living and be very happy. So I think the third point there is, well, what is the author actually looking to get out of this process? Are they writing because they inherently love writing and love that process of creation? Or are they writing because they want this to be a steady income stream and they want to be pushing out books quickly enough that they can make a stable living from it with books that are good enough to hit readers you know, um, trope points to be popular enough to sell fast and to sell the volume so that they can sustain a career. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that either, you know. You, you, it's always a spectrum of like, well, do I want to be entirely commercial and write to market and it doesn't matter whether I like what I'm writing or not, I just I need to write to market so I can please the readers right. and get the income and make the money or, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, am I completely literary and I don't care what other people think because I'm just writing to please myself and I'm just writing for fun or I'm just writing to say grand things about the universe and then everyone is somewhere on that spectrum in between. And I think that AI has very different applications at the different ends of that spectrum and then, you know, correspondingly for you, wherever you sit on that spectrum as well. I mean, exactly. Like, like what, like that level of creativity when it comes to drafting an instruction booklet or, you know, something along the lines where, because as sure. you brought up, there is that idea of that ghost in the shell. Like there's a spirit behind, yeah. we're all using the same words, but how you put them together is unique to that author. That's it. Yeah. It's like that meme that goes around, right? Of like every book you've ever read is just a remix of the dictionary. <laughs> I haven't heard. That must be like a, a writer meme. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, so, so as we're talking about it, you had a few projects that you were working on, and we do do a check in on how you're doing with some of yeah, those. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So my most current one is this lovely. 
Ah, I'm getting my left and my right really mixed up today. Sorry. <laughs> um, Change Comes Us is my current work. It is oh, a cool. book of poetry, poems of becoming. Um, I have this weird thing that my good friend Liana Brooks, who's also a writer, helped me realize, yeah. and that is that when I am in moments of crisis, my brain can't fiction, but it can poet. <laughs> and I tend to use poetry as a way of processing what's going on when I'm in difficult phases of my life. And so the three key phases of like the were that marked significant upheaval in my life was in high school when obviously I was a teenager, which is traumatic enough, but also my parents were divorcing. Um, I met my now husband and all sorts of big life events. And we had a couple of quite significant tragedies occur in the family as well. So um, that big period of upheaval, um, after the birth of my first child, I had postnatal depression. Um, and that was really the first time in my life that I started realizing that things that I had ex been experiencing my entire life were actually probably anxiety. Um, mm. And so going through that sort of like restructuring and also, of course, the reorganization and upheaval that naturally occurs when you bring a child into your house for the first time, shockingly enough, slightly disrupting right there. Um, and then the third one recently of, of moving, like essentially graduating from high school, you know, like I literally went from school to university and I did other things in my undergrad. So I didn't just go straight to a teaching degree, but still, you know, it was to university where it was that school environment back to being a school teacher. And so last year, like, yeah, at the age of 36, I finally left school and was mm. like, what do you mean people live without like their day carved into lesson periods and like set lunch times and like homework and set like, what? I'm sorry. What? Mm. 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 Yeah. Right. so poems poems happen in this state my teenage poetry not worth publishing uh, <laughs> last time, the postnatal depression episode there's a book up there somewhere that is my first book of poems that uh, basically came out of that period of my life and now we have change becomes us which has come out of this period of my life um there's okay. actually yeah so for a little while is the ones that i wrote when my son was little right yeah. Um, there's actually a Kickstarter running at the moment for Change Becomes Us as well. So if you want to pick up a signed copy or some such, you can do really? so on the Kickstarter. Good. I think. Yeah, I think oh, you can, yeah, there we go. There the top post there. There she is. All right. Oh, well, um, wrong button. Yeah, you'll have to go back and click the Kickstarter link. Sorry, the right. yeah, that one. There it is. Yeah. Yep. There it is. All right. So I just, you know, it's got a week to go. I think I need 10 more people to sign up for a paperback in order to get me over the line and fund. If I don't fund, that's okay. I knew it was a long shot. Not everyone is into poetry. It's not everyone's thing. But if anyone listening out there thinks that they may be one of the 10 people I need, I would love to have you. There um, you go. See? Yeah. I want to catch a glimpse of what the poetry is like because I know that particularly with poetry, people like to try before they buy. Uh, on my Instagram feed at the moment, all the recent posts, and I'll keep doing that throughout the next couple of weeks as well, the comment, like the caption for the photo has one of the poems there. So you can go and have a, have a read of those and see whether it's to your taste and see whether you might be interested. Do you want to read, do you want to read a poem, Amy? Do you have a poem? Oh, my gosh. Okay. Now we have decision paralysis because I'm like, oh, my God, what fun do I choose? Um, I'm going to try and choose one that is not too long. Right. Let's go with like a more generally applicable one here. Okay. So this is my proof copy. So it's got like the scribblings all through it right. where I've made 
changes and things like that. But this is a poem that is called Art is Dark. Okay. Art is dark when all is light, a soft, warm gentleness that eases bright, harsh spotlights from our eyes to soothe away the sharpness of the world, pointed pens like lances, sharpened tongues like daggers, DMs turned DOA, newsprint turned newspaste, floodlights brimming over, spilling into the very corners of our souls, leaving no intimate pebble unscoured. Art is a mushroom, gently unfolding, skirts drawn close, fragile and lacy, caps riotous and red or else purple and moist, gleaming green and burnished brown, egg white and charcoal black, that fungal god of decay that, ever-present, reminds us of our own fragility as something to gently nourish and protect. Art is the soft dimming of a callous voice, a calming, insistent call to peace, or else to war against the light that scourges every shadow from the land, every place of refuge, casting all into sharp relief, demanding this or that, one or the other, either, never both. There is no nuance in the light of day. Welcome to the dark. Wow, that's beautiful. Wow. So, so Amy, thank you again for coming on. And for those that are interested, so... Please check out. So there's a couple of websites. People can go to amylawrence.com. Yes. They can also check out your Kickstarter there as well. And we'll add a link to the show notes on that for the Kickstarter. Amazing. And yeah. and then also Inkprint Press is also a good yeah. place that they could check out some of your stuff as oh, well. It so. is. It is um, yeah, that one's due for a facelift as well. Part of the work that I'll be doing with this graphic designer will involve rehauling the imprint press site next month or so but you can definitely head there to see our entire catalog and you know read some excerpts and things like that so yeah for sure. perfect all right well thanks again amy this has always been a pleasure to have you come on the show and we always get to check in with you it's great yeah you're welcome Celsius is 64.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, that's super cold. Yeah. I don't know. Why, why did I set it at 68? Why did I set it at 18 degrees? Yeah, that is What's super 22, cold. 23? Because my the heating during winter, I always have my heating inside set at 22 if it's a sunny day, 23 okay. if it's an overcast day. All right. Alexa, what is 22 degrees Celsius? 22 degrees Celsius is 71.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, that's, that's a little warm. Yeah. Yeah. That's costing you money right there. You got to. <laughs>